On the 20th of January, 2021, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. President Biden has come into power, breaking records and making history. He received more votes than any other president in history, beating Obama's previous record. He is the oldest president to be sworn in, breaking Trump's record. He is the first president to have a female vice president. At the same time, as Trump leaves the White House, he too departs, having made history. Trump is the only president to have been impeached twice. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Cody Combs, and in this week's episode, we're looking at how unprecedented this presidential handover has been. On January the 6th, 2021, rioters broke into the Capitol building by a mob of Donald Trump supporters, adamant that their votes were being stolen. Making their way past police perimeters, vandalizing and looting as members of Congress had to be evacuated and taken to safety. As the dust settled in Washington, those who lived in the Capitol were shocked. Pamela Lessard is a resident of the city. So I'm worried, you know, as I see all this happening right now for Inauguration Day and I see these fences that don't look very stable to me and I'm just, the thought that you could think that a coup might happen when your new president is being inaugurated is a frightening, frightening prospect. Honestly, I wasn't completely surprised because I thought as soon as Trump got elected that something like this was bound to happen. Um, But still, when you actually see it happening, you are just completely shaken to the core. I thought it was disgusting, despicable, frightening. I lived overseas in my youth, lived through coups, lived through an embassy attack. It was very reminiscent of that. Never thought I'd see it in my own country. The shock of something like this happening on American soil was a reaction expressed often on social media in the following days. Then-President-elect Joe Biden described the riot as an unprecedented assault. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky is a presidential historian and a scholar-in-residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies. Well, there have certainly been times when the National Guard has been called out to protect the Capitol. Um, Actually, uh, uh, thousands of troops were stationed at the Capitol during the Civil War, and there are paintings of them in the halls, not unlike what we see today in photographs. They were also called out at moments, uh, particularly tense moments. So the National Guard was dispatched to the Capitol after 9-11. They were dispatched to the Capitol when there were um, race riots in the 1960s. Um, They were dispatched to the Capitol after the Oklahoma City bombings. You know, moments when people weren't totally sure what was going to happen next and wanted to make sure there would be that sort of security and protection. I think that the wide-scale... Um, militarization of D.C. is pretty unusual. That hasn't happened in the same way, certainly not for an inauguration. To my knowledge, the National Mall has never been completely closed for an inauguration, even during the Civil War or in World War II, which is pretty remarkable that that level of threat has been anticipated by federal forces and they believe that that is a requirement. I'm glad that they are doing so to protect the city and our government officials, but It is a sign of the seriousness and the gravity of the situation. The Biden inauguration went by smoothly, despite a bomb threat being called into the Supreme Court, which is opposite where Biden took his oath of office. 
there was no threat found and no evacuation was made. Despite or perhaps because of all the preparations against any violence, the most surprising part of the day was probably the rousing poem delivered by 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, the youngest poet to perform at a presidential inauguration. The loss we carry a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is... I spoke to Bryant Harris, one of the Nationals' correspondents in Washington, about what made this inauguration different. It was pretty much what one one would expect given the times. Obviously, first of all, um, you had the pandemic. So even as far back as, you know, November, December, the Biden transition team and like the D.C. government were asking people not to come for the inauguration on account of COVID. And then, of course, you had the insurrection that happened in the Capitol. And that's really what led to the completely unprecedented security perimeter. The whole National Mall was closed off several blocks away from the National Mall, extending like very deep, pretty much all of downtown D.C. That's not really something that anyone who's lived here, at least in recent memory, is used to experiencing. So between the pandemic and the failed insurrection, you know, you had like 25,000 plus National Guard troops. It was a heavily militarized presence. So, you know, not a great uh, signal of what that means for American democracy. But, you know, Biden uh, kind of tried to address that in a very hopefelt, heartful speech about unity. The calls for unity have been ringing since Biden's election win. Even though Trump lost the popular vote, his number of votes in this election were historically only second to Biden's own. Dr. Dravinsky tells us whether this is the most divided America has ever been. I think there have certainly been times when we've been very polarized. Um, I don't think that we are more polarized now than ever, but um, certainly sort of in the top three or four instances. I think the difference now that I see in terms of the periods that I've studied, for example, in the 1790s and the early 1800s, people were very partisan and they had very different views about how things should go. But the difference is that they understood that people were partisan and they understood that their presses and their newspapers and the sources that they were receiving material from were partisan publications. And so there wasn't this same sort of conflict over a universal truth, which is what I think we're really struggling with right now. The concept of fake news was not something they had then because they understood that newspapers didn't adhere to the same sort of journalistic standards that we came to expect in the mid 20th century. The other moments that I would suggest, of course, are the 1850s and the lead up to the Civil War, which is never a great moment if that's your parallel or your comparison to the contemporary moment. And then the last one I would say would be the 1890s and early 1900s, sort of the progressive era when there was a a big conflict over who should be in power, how the government should be structured, where the government resources should go. And there, you know, people talk a little bit about the Gilded Age and the railroads. And so there was a lot of tension and crisis at that moment as well. It just didn't lead to war. So we don't tend to remember it quite as well. Although a lot of presidents talk about unifying the country in their inaugural address, Bryant says the mood in Washington was definitely different this time around. The whole thing was like locked down the the last time the mall was open was Friday. So it was just very quiet. And like part of that is it's the city itself has just been very quiet um, since the pandemic started. 
the government here and a lot of the people take it more seriously than a lot of the country. So it's a bit more locked down than a lot of other places you'll find in the U.S. in certain respects. Um, so it was already quiet because of that. A lot of people were just celebrating in their homes. Obviously, with all the pomp and circumstance, usually there'd be all these like huge inaugural parties and balls that are obviously not happening this year. So, you know, you kind of miss out on the, which depending on your perspective, I would argue it's a good thing you miss out on all the glitz and glamour and the who's who, um, because that's not really what politics should be about. It should, you know, be about stopping the pandemic and making sure we have a vibrant democracy in the uh, we're able to overcome our differences and not, you know, who's wearing what to what ball. So it's it's eerie, but it's kind of nice, a nice refresher in a certain way, if you think about it. So it's it's interesting um, because, of course, he stressed that he wants to be a present for all Americans, not just like blue America uh, for Republicans as well, of course. That is something I will say, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, even Trump like said that. So that's just kind of something every president has to say, but it felt more significant this year in the wake of, it, you know, you had people unhappy with the election results literally storm the Capitol in an attempt to undo it, allegedly at the incitement of the of President Trump. But the big difference, um, you, you know, besides that I'll be a president for all Americans, uh, you know, Trump's speech focused heavily on what he called American carnage, and he said he would end the American carnage. Again, we are now in a pandemic. Uh, the transition of power has been heavily militarized at an unprecedented level in American democracy just because of all the paranoia about follow-up terrorist attacks or white nationalist attacks. I would say Biden tried to veer towards, you know, completely expected more of an Obama-esque hopeful speech than Trump's, which was much more doom and gloom. Another thing that had been unusual is that Donald Trump did not attend the inauguration. With several rare exceptions, it is tradition for the sitting president to extend an invitation to the White House to their successor and to cooperate with discussion prior to the transition of power. But none of that happened. He never conceded the election results until like after the failed insurrection, and even then kind of did. So I don't think anyone was seriously expecting him to attend. But I also think uh, people were relieved. You had Mike Pence there instead. More establishment Republicans could probably relax more, wear their masks without fearing some sort of like Twitter backlash from uh, President Trump. So it was expected, but I don't think anyone who was actually at the inauguration was upset about it. Dr. Travinsky puts this into a historical perspective. So much of it is unprecedented. He's, of course, the only president to be impeached twice and actually makes up half of the impeachments the country has had, which is pretty extraordinary. His behavior in terms of denying the election or the election results is completely unprecedented. No president has ever done so before. Some have been you know, very unhappy about the outcome, but they've never tried to overturn it or denied what the outcome was. A couple of presidents have elected not to attend the inauguration of their successors. John Adams was the first, although I think he should be forgiven because there wasn't really a precedent at that point. And it's easy to understand how maybe he might have thought his presence would have been a distraction. John Quincy Adams did not have that same excuse when he decided not to attend Andrew Jackson's inauguration. And Andrew Johnson, who did not attend the inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant, was just very grouchy about not being included. Um, other presidents haven't attended because of illness. But since Andrew Johnson, every president has attended if they are physically able to do so. And so 
while the law does not require Trump to be there, Norm demands it. And it's um, frankly really unacceptable that he would think himself above that practice. The idea that the president isn't acting as he should, given his position, is often described as not being presidential enough. The term presidential simply means relating to the president or to the presidency. But it has, over the years, gained a greater meaning. Is it the president who defines what it means to be presidential? Or does the word have implied qualities that a president should live up to? Presidential started with just the concept of what the position was supposed to be and then very quickly became much more symbolic and reflective of the stature of the person holding the office. And so much of that had to do with the first person who held the office, George Washington, who really had an unparalleled reputation at the time and I would argue in history as well. And because he had this gravitas that was essential for the first person holding the office in order to imbue it with the sort of legitimacy and stature necessary, it quickly became much more of a um, sort of honorific, not just a description of an office someone was holding. I asked Bryant if Donald Trump had changed the meaning of the word. I don't know if he's changed it permanently. I think there's like a certain level of tact and decorum you're expected to display as president, even with your adversaries that President Trump did not do, whereas even, uh, you know, very polemical or more on the right or left side of the spectrum politicians, like let's say Reagan or Carter, you know, they would never uh, stoop to giving their opponents derogatory nicknames. So, you know, for now, that sort of thing has stopped. You know, Trump wants to run again in 2024. So you have people vying for the Trump wing of the party, like Pompeo, possibly Ted Cruz, even if they kind of rally around those white identity politics for a potential 2024 run, you'd still expect them to conduct their policies in a more tactful and even competent way, which in some ways, um, you you know, given how extreme right American politics is going on the Republican side, that's not necessarily reassuring if you just focus on the term presidential, because sure, they can act presidential. They're still ultimately pandering to these elements that are rooted in conspiracy theories that cause people to storm the Capitol to try to overturn election results. As President Biden takes office, he has an America in front of him that is one of the most polarized in history. There is a lot spoken about a new president's first 100 days. It is an opportunity for the incoming president to set out his agenda. Biden and the Democrats have the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the White House. What prospects does this offer Biden to put his visions and policies in place? Part of the problem is, and this is a long-standing issue, he'll probably be relying more and more on executive orders because, yes, nominally Democrats do have control of Congress, but the problem is in the Senate, it's literally a 50-50 split with one um, Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote in her capacity as vice president, presumably you're not going to get a whole lot of Republican support for a lot of Biden's legislative agenda. That means you'll be lying on this narrow 51-vote majority, and you have Democrats in more purple states, more centrist Democrats, you know, people maybe like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, who might necessarily not be on board with everything and side with Republicans a lot. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to pursue major legislative reform that Democrats would probably like to see, especially because there was a 60-foot threshold with the filibuster in the Senate. So you're going to see a lot like Obama did. He'll be relying on executive actions a lot, I think. 
And it is actions that will truly define the Biden presidency and the future of the United States' place in the world. Will there be action on climate change? Will there be enough action to stop the fatal chaos caused by coronavirus? Again, the Democratic Party now has control over the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the White House. Outside Washington, however, the party and Biden face a very divided electorate. As Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman stressed during the inauguration, the world isn't just looking to Biden, it's looking to the people of the United States. For while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. For now, though, step one has been completed. The peaceful, albeit very much altered, transition of power was achieved. The goals and challenges remain lofty, but experts say that first step, inauguration, should not be minimized. It is a very intentional choice that the president goes to the U.S. Capitol to take the oath of office. And it is almost a subservient choice in that the president is taking the oath of office at the people's house. And it is a stark reminder that the a democracy is supposed to be government by the people for the people. And no one person is really above another. In theory, the president could have in the past taken the oath at the White House or at a different location. And so that choice of location is, is a really stark reminder that our government relies on having several branches. It relies on a Congress that does represent the American people. And it also reminds us what the government is supposed to be. So it's not just about taking the oath. It's about the whole sort of reminder of our government and the process and uh, the promise of the potential of the future. Congratulations, Mr. President. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Cody Combs. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. And if you have time, we'd really appreciate a review. This episode was produced by Aisha Khan, Arthur Edison, Katerina Holtzapple, and Erica Elkershie. 